0: My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. And if you would flip open uh, to First Thessalonians 5:16 with me, and as you're turning there, I will introduce that we are starting a new series and/or continuing a series. Because as we've been telling you throughout this year, our goal is to have a larger spiritual formation series that's going to span really all of this year and pretty much a good chunk of next, in which we will regularly be dropping in to give you a mini-series of a practical way in which the church has formed themselves into the image of Jesus or practiced the way of Jesus for the life of the world, uh, together for the life of the world, as we've been saying around here. And so uh, we'll splice that up just because we our other habit is to just preach through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, and go through texts to see that, um, that the Bible is being inactive and speaks very real and and tangibly to us in our lives right now. So we'll keep jumping back to Exodus, as we just were for about six weeks, and then do a series, and then back to Exodus, and then back into another mini-series. So this one will take us up to Easter, and then after that uh, we'll be in Exodus for a little bit post-Easter, and then eventually get into the the spiritual formative practice of uh, Scripture and using Scripture and The Bible to be formative, maybe beyond what you are used to on a normal level. Because again, this is actually what we're doing here in prayer. We're looking to take prayer, which is a concept that you are very familiar with probably being an American in 2019. In fact, you probably experienced prayer. Maybe you experienced prayer on a daily basis. But I would argue that much of what my experience has been, and I'm guessing yours too, is a vast truncation of the entirety of prayer, that there is just a scratching of the surface when it comes to what we're familiar with and what, how people have related to God over the centuries. And we simply want to bring our awareness up to a level of at least knowing all the ways that we can delve into knowing God through prayer and even practicing together as communities, as missional communities. And so I want to do that, but first let me read 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Or 988. Here it is. Rejoice always. That's a verse. You can memorize that verse right now. Memory verse today. Done. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, too. (laughs) Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So prayer is, again, maybe with Scripture reading, the two spiritual formation practices that If you've spent any time in church or ever had a meal with someone who does, you have at least experimented and dabbled in. But we're also like really historically terrible at it. And I think there's a lot of reasons and things we've identified here from the pulpit before. We've talked about, I mean, it's not news to us, that like we are a very distracted culture and that we are the most distracted culture with now post-2007 with the iPhone or at least a smartphone being a semi-permanent appendage in your life. And you have to live in such a way that you're regularly having people in Silicon Valley work for your attention. It's all about how can we get your attention because you, you own your smartphone, but don't be fooled. You work for it. And we have the sense where, like, if you sit here and try to add that to a culture of prayer, I mean, I've said before, it's like you're praying, you know, and you, like, sit down and you're, like, just trying to pray through your day and, like, your family and I don't know, anything you can think of. And then, like, you get, like, two minutes into that. And then you come to, like, 20 minutes later, and you're like, have I been thinking about GAC? Like, like the Nickelodeon slime toy from the 90s. And then you like, spend the rest of the time like, trying to trace it back. You're like, well, I was praying for my, my family, and I was praying for my son and his birthday, and then I started thinking about a birthday gift I got, which was GAC, and it kind of just unraveled from there. And, and you take that, and that was like, okay, well, that was a bad day of prayer, and you move on, and you're just like, yeah, I'm just not good at this. Or you like, get the distraction from like praying corporately with other people. So you, Have you been in the room where like, people are praying, but really they're just like triangulating a conversation to the other person through God. And it's like, it almost becomes like a theological debate, like where someone's just like, Father, God, thank you for the freedom we have in Christ and the grace and the other person just said, but thank you for your law and your truth and how we submit to it. And eventually you're just like looking back like, do you have something that you want to inform God about through prayer Uh, to rebuttal that? And it's like, okay, I don't know if this is what God had in mind. And then you take that and combine it with the fact that, like, we really struggle to even know what exactly we're doing when it comes to prayer. Like, am I just informing God of things that I'm well aware that He already knows about? So, it, like, becomes, like, a really lame news feed for God in which He just sits there and scrolls, as I say, and He likes or dislikes or you know, more biblically, he's just judgment or grace and, you know, or something to that effect. And then you get like, okay, but then what's actually happening in prayer? Like, am I changing things through prayer? Because God, we talked last week about the sovereignty of God and God knowing all things and, 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 and being in control of all things, but yet that also giving us free will. And those things do not contradict in the economy of God's knowledge. And somehow that just blows our brains. But regardless, like, then what am I doing in prayer? Like, Am I asking him to just change circumstances? Or am I, like C.S. Lewis said, am I just letting God change my heart? I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a great theological thinker in my mind. I love reading him. I love quoting him. I love like, his nonfiction and his fiction work, all great stuff. Um, but And I don't know if this is actually a quote of C.S. Lewis or just a quote attributed to him. But there's one point where apparently he said to... Uh, a wife that he had later in his life, she, like, you know, observed him praying one time, and she said, like, what, why do you pray? And he said, well, I pray not to change the world, but because God changes my heart in praying and, inform, and aligns it to his will. And I'll go out on a limb and contradict C.S. Lewis. I think that is biblically bunk, <laughs> because I have text after text where it says, hey, knock, but don't knock so that you will have your will changed so that the door won't be opened. Knock, because I'm going to open the door. Hey, ask, because I'm going to give something to you. James seems to think we have not because we ask not. Or you get Elijah, First Kings 18, where he's just like praying for rain. And he prays with all his might and asks his servant, hey, go check the horizon. He says, there's nothing. So he prays again. He says, okay, go check the horizon again. Nothing. Seven times he does that. And then the last time his servant says, Oh, yeah, there's something happening now. Which then really gets into the effectiveness of prayer, which might be another one of our big problems with it, because our culture is a major effective efficiency idol. That which will make our lives easier, more effective, more efficient, more mass producible, more like we can get more bang for our buck or return on our investment. And the problem is, is that prayer, at least to our eyes, is wildly ineffective and inefficient. I mean, particularly then, you start like reading parables where God says something like, Hey, here's what prayer's like. It's like an old widow who shows up to a wicked judge and says, Ask me something. And I'll say no. And then she asks him again. And he says no, and asks him for days that turn into weeks, that turn into months, that probably turn into years. And eventually says, that judge is going to give her what she wants, not because he's a good judge, but just because she wore him down. And God, in a crazy twist of events that I would never put on God if he didn't do it himself, he says, I'm like that. Prayer is like that. Except because I'm righteous and not wicked, how much more will I give you what you wish? You're going to ask in the same way. And so that just goes into the point of, like, okay, then how many times do I pray? How many times do I pray for something? Like, should, could, I, could I just always be praying for something until it happens? Or is there a time where I just say, like, hey, let it be your will? We get into a point where I think we get really diagnosed by Paul Miller in his book, of Praying Life, which is one of my favorite modern books on prayer, where he says this. One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. As a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. That reflects my heart. But then I read things uh, just in, like the life of Jesus. Like just the book of Luke. Take Luke 5:15. Crowds coming to Jesus. Like, we'll not leave him alone because they want to be healed. And it says, like, he sneaks away from the crowds. It says he withdrew to the lonely place and he prayed. And then you flip a chapter and then 6, uh, verse 12. He's on a mountainside. He prays all night long. Get the fact that he only did his ministry for three years. Take your career and shrink it down to three years. Whatever you get done in three years, that will be your legacy. And he spends an entire night praying, and probably the next day recovering from that. I mean, he was fully man and fully God. It wasn't like he's just like, I slept spiritually, I'm fine. Like he probably goes a little bit sluggish the next day on healing. Or maybe he just didn't go back. That's how much he prioritized it. Or then you get the moment of the transfiguration, the moment where, where God decides to reveal the glory of Christ to his disciples happens in a moment where Jesus steals away for prayer. Or in 11.1, 1, where it says he's in a certain place, he's praying, and then his disciples, as if they like finally get it, be like, hey, teach us how to do that. Like what you just did there, we want to know how to do that. You get the feeling that prayer is not like a quick check-in for Jesus so that he can at least feel good about his day or about eating a meal. But it's like intricately woven into his ministry. It's the very lifeblood of his ministry. I mean, you get, you get the Apostle Paul, too. I mean, you don't have to just take Jesus. You get... Pretty much every book he writes, he starts out with something to the effect of Ephesians 1. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And he goes on. But then he says in Philippians 1, he says, I thank my God in my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Or you get... Colossians 1.9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. First Thessalonians, book we started with, he starts the book like this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith and labor and love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, again, same thing. You get the point that like, it seems like Paul sees the most impactful work of his apostleship, not planting churches around the known world, not spreading the faith of Jesus from a small group of people in an upper room to the entire known world world that we see i mean there's there are still people groups there are still people groups that don't have access to jesus but man it's shrinking on the daily and it's all because of the starting work of paul it seems like his biggest contribution he saw for every church that he started or was a part of starting was that he would pray for them unceasingly is the same word he says when he says i've not stopped and so you get this you get the inverse of where paul miller comes back in his book and he says this Here's what, here's what I think that we find ourselves. If you're not praying, then you're quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. And, oh man, this is very true of me, so I'm guessing this is probably, he's diagnosed it right. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy. But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy No matter how tired you are, you will find the time to pray. It's reminiscent of a quote from Martin Luther that I've said before, and maybe you're familiar with, where people said of the great reformer that he would pray three hours every day. To which one point, eventually somebody said, Man, Martin, life is really busy. How do you find three hours every day to pray? To which he replied, Yeah, life is really busy. How do you not find three hours to pray? Every day. In all of that, I don't think, I don't know if this would be our biggest problem, but at least it's one of us that I haven't hit on yet. Is that, like I said before, we gravely reduce prayer to like a coffee stirrer of what the actual practice of it is historically. Because I guess a couple of reasons. First of all, we're very goal-oriented people, and so it becomes a sense of just as a society, we're very much so interested in, how do I know I did it? How do I know I won? And so we make prayer just like, okay, like, I don't know, morning, bedtime, three times a day, maybe, if you're really killing it, you are killing it right there at prayer. But the other problem is is something that Jonathan Merritt brings up, who's an author and a, a reporter, actually, and he writes for a number of publications, including religious news services and One thing that he brings up in one of his more recent books is talking about the difference between in the West, we worship God by making noise, noise creation. And so you preach a sermon or you listen to a sermon. You sing a song. You recite a prayer. You audibly speak out loud. You have a spiritual conversation with a friend. You speak in tongues if you're charismatic. Um, In the East, however, they experience God through silence. And because the Bible is written primarily by Eastern thinkers, it's no wonder that we get things like Habakkuk, sitting at the gates in silence, or phrases like, in quietness, salvation will come, or the one that we all know if you've been around, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. He said, it's not like one of them's right and one of them's wrong. Like, you Westerners just don't get it. You're getting way too gabby with God. And if you would just calm down, he would actually show up. He says, no, there's actually something to be beautifully celebrated about the fact that we have learned in wonderful ways to communicate ourselves to God. God speaks. And so we speak in response to him. Just like when I speak to my children, they learn to respond back to me. They only speak because they've been spoken to by God. And I've been, I've been spoken to God. They've been spoken to by me. But it's not one's better or worse. It's the equivalent to chest day and leg day. To which, if you spend any time at a gym, you know the guy who skips leg day. <laughs> he comes in every day, every day is chest day. Or it's chest day and rest day. And eventually he becomes a caricature of a gorilla. Or he quits, more likely, but regardless, the first advice they will give you is don't start too fast, start where you're at and don't skip leg day. But legs are just not the sexy muscles, at least not in our culture, so therefore, eh, I'll get to them when I can. The problem is, it's like we're like a culture, we're really good at chest day, but we're horrible at silence. We're horrible at communicating with God in so many different ways. I mean, if you just take, I just went and I thought like, okay, what are like the different kinds of ways of prayer I've learned about or been interacting with in the last year? And just quickly off the top of my head, I thought of listening prayer, silence and contemplative prayer, intercessory prayer, imaginative prayer, scriptural prayer, liturgical prayer, singing prayer. You don't have to just be singing. You can actually be singing and praying. And then you have spiritual groaning or emotive prayer. That's when like it says like in scripture like sometimes you don't even have the words. Like the spirit just intercedes with groanings and you just can only think emotions or be sitting still in emotions. Lamenting prayer, prayer fixed hour prayer. All of these combine in a life to create first Thessalonians 5 16 through 18 rejoice always pray without ceasing giving thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you like a lot of you are like pray without ceasing good gravy like I tried that one time and I was like prayed out in two and a half minutes it was like I prayed for my family I prayed for the nation I prayed you know like for Trump against Trump I don't know either way and then like I like after that I'm like I'm out What if prayer without ceasing, I mean, in some ways it's a hyperbole, right? He says the same word, the pray without ceasing, the same thing when he says to the Thessalonians, I pray for you constantly, that same word, I pray without ceasing for you. But we know he prayed for the Romans, he prayed for the Philippians, he prayed for the Ephesians, he prayed for the Colossians, he prayed for them unceasingly apparently too. And so on some level it just means you pray all the time, like you pray in such a way that it's like you never stop praying for them or never stop praying in general. But what if there's another lens to that? What if there's something else that Paul means when he says, hey, pray without ceasing, that he and so many other of the biblical authors and spiritual fathers seem to not just view prayer through a pragmatic lens. How do I know I did it? But they view it through a relational lens. How do I enter into a place of relating to God through prayer? it's where you get the concept that Brother Lawrence writes about in practicing of the presence, practice the presence of God. See, he was a monk, but his main activity in monkery was dishwashing. And so he sits there and says, okay, how do I dishwash in the presence of God? So much so that he became so sought after, he eventually just pins practicing the presence of God, which is reflections on how you wash dishes in the presence of God. He said, people said of him, he's so joyful. People had to know, what is your secret in the joy that you exude? He said, oh, it's simple. I live every moment of my life in the presence of God. Because apparently that's where joy is. And love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But the first one was joy. I mean, that's what Paul says in Galatians 5, and he says, hey, this is another way to view praying unceasingly. Walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Here's here's a, a metaphor for you. It's like you walk every day, right? Do that in the Spirit of God. Or Jesus says himself, hey, do you want to have really lasting fruit or find real deep maturity in life with me? Abide in me like a fruit does on a vine. It can't receive life. In fact, the second it falls, it begins dying. Or you get things like Sky Jatani writes in his book With. He writes a book, short read, but very helpful, in which he depicts five ways you can relate to God. And he says most people spend their life in the four ways, the first four. The first four are this. There's life under God. He equivocates that to a businessman or woman seeking to live a spiritual life so that God will bless their business. That's life under God. Or you get life over God. That's putting prayer on the back burner because we really know it's good marketing techniques that are going to make this church move forward. Life over God. Or you get life for God. This was me for so long. In fact, this is still me in my pretty much every day that I'm not consciously thinking to not be this one. It's life of like, can I live and make choices in such a way so that I can hold it up before God and say like, surely you're pleased with this. Always with a low grade sense of guilt and shame that he's not. Or then you get life from God. And that's, of course, that's a person who lived their life for God or under God, and then He didn't give them what they want, so now they're in rebellion. And say, like, well, I did this and you didn't do that, so therefore get away from me. He says most of people spend their life weaving in and out of those four, and they rarely get to life with God. Every single day, every single moment, Ceaseless prayer. Because prayer doesn't just become talking to God, it becomes what Robert Mulholland says when he says, an established posture of relationship with God that becomes the context within we experience all the events and relationship in our lives. Or John Ortberg, a pastor in Northern California, says it like this: prayer, more than any other single activity, is the place in us. Uh, is what places in us the flow of the Spirit. I love that phrase, and we'll come back to it. When we pray, hearts get convicted. Sin gets confessed. Believers get united. Intentions get encouraged. People receive guidance. The church is strengthened. Stubbornness gets melted. Wills get surrendered. Evil gets defeated. Grace gets released. Illness gets healed. Sorrows are confronted. Faith is born. Hope is grown. And love triumphs in prayer. In the presence of God, we come the closest to being fully ourselves. So how do you do that all the time? This way. The goal of prayer in the goal of the Christian life, mind you, is to live all of my life and speak all of my words in the joyful awareness of the presence of God. It's what who I believe Eugene Peterson talks about when he, he talks about the concept of, as I mentioned earlier. He says, hey, God created a speaking God. He spoke the world into existence. And we, just like children who are spoken to and therefore learn to respond, are now just living our whole life as a response to God speaking things into creation. Interesting about this passage that I have to point out that is somewhat tangentially connected is that Paul then says, hey, this is the will of God for you. And that's important because everyone I know One of their primary reasons for engaging deeply in the things of God is to shake the metaphorical spiritual eight ball enough so that the will of God will surface. And there's two times at least that I can think of off the top of my head where Paul says, hey, here's the will of God. One of them here, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God for you. And the other one is Ephesians 5, and that's, this is the will of the Lord. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Quick mini-sermon, not about if you touch alcohol, you hate Jesus. Is about, don't be filled with all these other things, and be filled, or neglect to be filled with the presence of the Spirit, which produces the fruit of the Spirit as you walk along with it day by day. And that's important because, again, what we think of as the will of God is should I move here or should I move there? Should I marry this person or not marry this person? Should I take this job or that job? Should I go to this college or that college? Should I buy this house or that house? And we think of all these major life decisions as trying to discern the will of God, where Paul is really clear, no, 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 God doesn't see the will for your life as those major decisions. I mean, maybe in a small way, because he will speak and communicate and lead you. But he says, here's how you know you've gotten into the will of God. If you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, no matter what happens, you're rejoicing and praying in God's will for you, that he is holding you next to him no matter what comes. And you're filled with the Spirit walking along with him. That's 99.9% of the will of God. Because the will of God doesn't come in major life decisions. It comes in a billion tiny daily decisions. Most of them subconscious. Of when I wake up in the morning, do I first shape my soul by checking email or the scores from last night? Or do I enter into this moment in prayer in the presence of my Father? As I walk through my day, do I just find prayer as a quick, get it off the conscience so I can eat food now? Or do I live in a constant day by day, moment by moment, moment, full awareness, processing every relationship, every event, everything in the presence of my Father? That's the will of God for your life. Move wherever you want. Take whatever job you want. I was going to say marry whoever you want, but I I have, actually, I don't think that. But either way. (laughs) Just saying, pray about it and watch their life, okay? Free advice for you uh, for considering marriage. Okay. So begs the million-dollar question, how do we do this? If that's the goal, awesome. I want to live in 99.9% of the will of God for my life. How do I do an unceasing prayer? How do I cultivate that in my life? I have four practicals for you. Because it's a spiritual formation series, it'd be really stupid if I didn't give you practicals. So here's four practicals that at least I'm trying to cultivate in some way in my life. Number one, slow down. Corey ten Boom, a Holocaust survivor and a great spiritual thinker, writes, if Satan can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Which is like a major wake-up call to our culture because, again, hurry and sin put you in the same mental state. They put you in a place where you're divorcing yourself from the presence of God, divorcing yourself from the reality that he said is good and right, and it's trying to bend reality to your will because this is what you want or because you just need to get this done. And... It's not just workaholics. Like, we, we bang on workaholics all the time in our culture because there's just a lot of them, and, you know, I'm not really one of them, and so you're an easy target for me. But either way, what it is is, yes, workaholism, but also the other side, which I am, which is people who just fill your life with a lot of little things, a lot of little meaningless clutter. And so a lot of little tasks, a lot of wide relationships rather than depth of relationships, and another series, another podcast, another something that just eventually adds up to having a crowded life for the presence of God to get through. And so the first thing is, if we're going to do this, we need to counter-culturally slow life down. We preached all about silence, Sabbath, and solitude last month. Refer to that if you need more on that topic. Second thing, slow down. Second Prayer to God only deepens if you can start where you are. Similar to the gym philosophy, don't start where you think you should be. Start where you actually are at. So that means praying what you think and what you really feel, regardless of how spiritually and theologically correct it is the Psalms have no problem giving wildly authentic prayers of people who are really bitter towards their enemies, or people that just don't really believe that God exists right now, or people that are so depressed. Psalm 88 is like a person that is so lonely, so depressed, so anxious. All they can do is rail against the darkness that they experience and they don't end the prayer then but god i know you will save me from this they simply end with the word utter darkness end of psalm chew on that church for a couple of millennia because that's what it's like when god pens a prayer book so that just takes us away from this place where we like you know do the prayer language and prayer voice we're like, you're just like, you know, Ted, can you lead us in prayer? And you're like, oh yeah, totally. Father God, Jehovah Ratha, we beseech thee to lead us in a manifestation of your glory. You're like, what in the world? Like, what, did, I mean, First of all, are you picking up a mid-Atlantic accent? And second of all, what other context are you going to use beseeched unquestioningly? And so then you get that moment and then you get like all the prayer rut vocal garbage or just phrase garbage, which my favorite is, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, which is just hitting the send button. And it's, we do it because Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, I will give to you. And so then we translated that into, in every prayer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh, and I forgot this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Oh, wait, yeah, also that in jesus name we pray amen and like you're like did you just say in jesus name we pray amen in jesus name we pray amen yeah yeah i mean you know like it's just like yes it's good to pray in the name of jesus if you're praying in the name of jesus if it's just a phrase it becomes what jesus said is empty babble that just gets offered up to him like pagans Because pagans, it's just if I say enough words and enough phrases, I'll get the attentions of the gods. If I just say in Jesus' name we pray amen, I'll get what I want. It's a pragmatic view of prayer, not a relational one. And so maybe you need to not pray in Jesus' name for a while and say, God, I know I should be praying in Jesus' name, but if I'm honest, I'm not there. Move my heart. Because you can't really. And so it's praying authentically and not filtering all the pretends and the shoulds, but just praying where you're at and letting God grow you there. And then it's also opening up to the flow that was from that John Ortberg quote where he talks about just all of life and the life of what we are meant to be happening when we're in prayer and when we're in constant, all of our life, relationships and events in prayer. And so that looks like once you slow down, once you're authentic, opening yourself up to the floor, uh, flow looks like not only viewing life not, or prayer not through a pragmatic lens, but a relational lens, it's viewing life not through a moral lens, but a relational lens. And so a moral lens does this. Where is the sin line? And once I know it, I walk to it and I back up a half step. And that's where 1 John gets at this concept of like, that's how you get in love with the world. Where you filter everything like, okay, where's the line that I don't cross? And you get your heart really attached to things that are perishing in this world. Not bad things, good things. But just things that could get taken from you at any second. And if they did, your life would shatter. And John just says, hey, that's That's no way to cultivate yourself into a really deep, joyful life that is free from pain. Not pain, just free from anxiety because pain is not the worst thing in the world. You can experience pain in prayer constantly to your Father. You can experience loss. You can experience boredom. You can experience anything. So if you stop looking through a moral lens, but you start looking through... um, the relational lens, you then get what Brother Lawrence again wrote. He said, renouncing not what leads to sin, but renouncing what does not lead to God. Here's the big, you've got to figure this out moment of the day. You've got to figure that out for you. Because I don't know what leads you to God and what leads you away from God. How I've heard it said in the past and how I've tried to practice it in my own life is what stirs my relationship to God and what robs me of my feeling of the presence of God that could be a show, that could be a podcast, that could be a song, that could be a relationship, that could be a book completely unspiritual, at least in its efforts. I can read a great work of fiction with Jesus. I can watch a great work of fiction, even that depicts some level of depravity, in fact, a great deal. But I always know when I've gone to a place where that's just robbing me of affection for Jesus. I always know when things that are not morally wrong if I follow sports too closely, it just starts robbing me of my affections. There's nothing wrong with sports. Praise God. I watch, I've been watching the tournament to the glory of God this week. But there's always a point where I realize I'm updating my app way too frequently, and I just start like losing any sense of sensitivity to the spirit and joy. I mean, that's the first thing. You just start doing something, even though you have take very little or... uh, increasingly diminishing returns of joy in it. Or yeah, there's things that are just like, yeah, that's morally gray, it's morally neutral, it's morally whatever, you know, but like at the end of the day, I have to ask and you have to ask yourself, is this going to stir my relationship or will it rob it? Here's the thing. Nobody's going to be able to check your work. That's between you and God. You know. And so you work through that. And then fill your life with which that which opens you up to the flow of the Spirit. And whatever measures you can remove from your life, that's which closes you off to it. This is the will of God for you. To pray unceasingly by opening yourself up to the flow of the Spirit and pushing away from what closes you off. So open up to the flow. So then slow down. Uh, pray where you're at. Open up to the flow. And then lastly, oh, no, i got to say this before I do that. Number one thing in my mind for you when it comes to opening up the flow and for me, phone habits or phone boundaries. Even Apple just hit us with our screen time, which, praise God, 20% down this week, preaching with authenticity. Um, (laughs) But still, it'll be 20% up next week. Uh, But maybe not because I'm trying more and more to actually put real boundaries on my phone. Because I read an article that said, quit saying I need to be on my phone less and set specific goals and tell people about it. And so you need to pick which hours your phone does not go on, which days your phone doesn't go on, referencing the Sabbath series again. Because you, you can hit the button on the side, hold it for a second, swipe when it prompts you to, an Apple appears, Genesis 3. <clears throat> <laughs> And it goes black. Apple with a bite taken out of it. Take that. I mean, what? What in the world? Like, holy cow! I mean, if you're going to be like Revelation, like the Apache helicopters, they'd at least go after Apple with that. Like, uh, regardless, that's oh, I, the whole. No time, and I don't really care that much of all of that. About all that, either way. So you can do that for a whole day, or a whole hour, or twenty minutes. You'll save battery life. Or you can have certain rooms where it doesn't go in. Or certain conversations where you silence everything, not just vibrate, silence. One glance at a device exponentially depreciates your ability to feel empathy for the person you're talking to, even this. So that's huge for our souls. Another way just to think of, it is this. There's 86,400 seconds every single day. How many of them can you potentially spend in the presence of your Father? Let me tell you what. This, today, probably not very many. But I bet you could get more by the end of the week if you intentionally tried. I bet you could get more by the end of the month. I bet you could get way more by the end of the year if you formed yourself intentionally. One last point about this. Yeah, okay, one last point about this. There's always this sense of like, okay, what's spiritual and what's not spiritual and opening yourself up to the flow. And that just neglects the concept of a God who's a father who wants to spend time with you. Again, that's seeing things through a moral or pragmatic lens and not a relational lens. Here's the thing that's true about me and my son. I love to spend time with him. His interests and my interests do not align. Friday night, I was at PJ Masks Live. <laughs> not an intricate plot. Character development, low. <laughs> but I'll sit there and watch episodes with him because he's into it. I'll, I'll, he'll ask questions about it. I'll look things up so I can talk to him about PJ Masks. As we're driving through, somebody once taught me this, and I just regularly do, as we drive to school, he's the only one that goes to school, and we sit there in silence, which is a good thing to do together. There's a time where like, I want to go for the radio or something just because it's easy. But I said, no, I only get so many of these rides. And so I started just asking the question that I've been taught to ask. Hey, Judah, what do you see? Because I want to know what he sees. I want to know how he processes life. I want to know what he's looking at and how he's processing and internalizing that. And I want to talk to him about that. It doesn't matter if it's spiritual. Half the time, it's houses. The other half, it's (laughs) grass. And we start talking about that. And we just start keep viewing life and keep, doing life, it's not spiritual, it's not profound, but I'm a father who likes to spend time with my son. So I'm into what he's into. And God seems to describe himself pretty similar to that. Why would prayer just be listing off things you want to have happen? It's not less than that. It's a whole lot more. A whole lot more. briefly jumping into this, if this is true, if those practicals are going to ensue, then the most important one that probably have to do is we have to arrange our lives intentionally for the results that we want. As the business principle goes, your life is perfectly arranged to give you the results that you've been getting up until now. And so if it's not a lot of time consciously in the presence of your father, then what you're doing moving forward is going to continue to give you that same result. However, if you intentionally Cultivate and practice, as I said, you can move forward in a week, a month, a year's time, a decade's time, or 40 years' time. Think about the compound interest of putting four years into this. Or think about the compound interest of 40 years of not. And so you have to have some level of just getting what theologians have called the roving hawk of the mind settled. Dallas Willard talks about hey, this is a real thing, but it's not the force of gravity and it can be broken just takes time of regularly turning yourself back to the presence of God. And so the way that you do that is, yes, through I- like organic, spontaneous prayer. But those are mainly cultivated by really structured, really inorganic prayer. And so I, mean, I get it. I'm a P on the Myers-Briggs. I'm a 7 on the Enneagram. I don't do good with structure. It's just it's, it's death to me. But I do it in prayer because I just don't do it in any other way. And so I do things like I have a fixed schedule. Now, fixed hour prayer is intense. I mean, there's a whole, there's, I got a schedule of it, actually, if you could just toss it up. I mean, look at this, 12 a.m. matins, 3 a.m. lauds, 6 a.m. prime, 9 a.m. Terce, 12 p.m. sext, sext. That's um, not a lot of sex in monasteries at noon. 3 p.m. nuns, 6 p.m. vespers, 9 p.m. Compline, and then it goes back to 12 a.m. matins, and it goes through the day. Now, that's like a full-time job of, what do you do? I pray. And those are an hour each, by the way. So that is monastery life, I get it, not your life. But here's what you can do. A few times throughout the day, a buzz on your phone that you redeem for the glory of God to just say, hey, minute of a silent retreat right now. You've got three meals. That's already probably built into a lot of your rhythms of just taking a minute to return your life gaze, your present moments Into the Spirit of God. It's more effective than just praying all in the morning or all at night because that's like, okay, here's what I need to do to get my day going, and now I step into my day and I leave God behind. Rather than regularly throughout, I just check in. You can do that at the long light on your commute home. People will make sure that you break from the presence of the Spirit to get moving again. Believe me, don't worry. You can do that before each meal. Again, naturally put in there. Maybe not if you have the meeting, but maybe. It also looks like for me, um, because I do things where I just like, want to be able to like, just sit for a while, I'll do things like either silence and solitude, or I'll do, like, I'm going to do like five minutes of Thanksgiving, and I set a timer. Really unspiritual move to do, but I set a timer. Because I'll do about three and a half minutes of thankfulness and about a minute and a half of GAC. And so I'll just come back and go, like, oh, no, I was thinking about GAC. All right, and then I move on, and... And I process that. And again, maybe this is something too, just that I, found, I heard this week and it's really moving to me. Maybe I let my distractions be my direction because they're what I'm really thinking about. They're what I really care about in that moment. And so like, what are you saying? You pray about GAC for a minute? Yeah, I'm just, I think God is big enough to like process that memory with me. I think he's big enough to think about that with me. I'll move on. I'll go on to other things that are quote-unquote more spiritual. But he's just spending time with me, and I'm spending time with him. And so I have a timer. I have a card system where I just write like random requests that I have, and I keep them in a stack of cards, and I pray through them. This is from Paul Miller, again, Praying Life. Three seconds a the card, I try. Uh, sometimes I get off on that. I, see, I look around the room, and I actually see a lot of your names every other week. You get three seconds, but you get three seconds every other week. I don't have time for that. The point is this have a technique, have something. Because inor- organic is beautiful, but it, it's cultivated through inorganic doing it over and over and over again. Tom Brady still practices seven step drops, he'll be 70 this y- next year. <laughs> and he practices every year because he wants to do it organically. It takes a lot of inorganic thought and structure to be doing something organically. And then just, as we'll say in all of our practice series, you'll hear this point a million times in the next year. Invite yourself into a time of practice. And so invite a mentality of practice. Maybe you'll be awesome at prayer naturally. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll love it. Maybe you'll hate it. Maybe you'll experience what most things you do, which is the J-curve, which is a known phenomenon of every time you start to do something and you intentionally try to get better, first thing is is you get worse. And then you dip out on getting worse and then you start adjusting and then you go up exponentially. And so the first several months, maybe the first year, is the loop of the J. But don't give up. Get in a missional community and in community, let's practice these things together. Because in 40 years, We'll either have cultivated this in our souls or not. We'll either have cultivated love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our souls. Or just anything else. Let's pray. Uh, Before I pray, or I guess I could just do this in my prayer and triangulate my conversation to God. Um, I'll say that we're going to enter in after this time of the time of communion. I invite you potentially to your inaugural minute retreat. The band's going to come forward. They're going to start playing. You take as long as you want. Even if communion passes, you can come and we'll, we'll serve it to you afterwards. Or you can just come and tear it off and we'll just know that person, they were praying. They got into it. <laughs> and the spirit moved. Praise God. Or you can just come and for a moment remind yourself and sit in the fact that God is saying, hey, I want to enter into a relationship with you, and I've done everything to take sin out of the way, to give you righteousness, to redeem this world, that I came, I am come, which is not grammatically incorrect. I am presently have come, and I'm coming again. And so I invite you to that minute retreat. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to a much longer retreat. Just simply don't jump in this moment because that's what that means, but I'd ask you to reflect on a relationship with a God like this. we'd love to pray and talk to you about that. Let's pray. Father God, as we enter into this time of talking to you in prayer, I pray again that it would only cultivate deeper in us a spirit to pray without ceasing, spending time with you, reopening ourselves to the flow of your spirit, which is simply looking to be with us. In Jesus' name.